Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sales Leadership Foundations podcast. I'm your host, Ray Green, and if you're in a sales or revenue leadership role, you're in the right place. On this podcast, we explore the various things it takes to build a high-performance sales organization. We talk strategy, tactics, culture, leadership, and maybe most importantly, self-leadership. You'll hear from me and the lessons that I learned on my own journey from sales rep to CEO, as well as other guests and experts, including some of the members of our own Sales Leadership Foundations Forum and Mastermind community. Check out rayjgreen.com for more information about me and forum.rayjgreen.com for more information about the community. Thanks for listening. Now let's dive into why you're here today. Hey, everyone. Today, we have a show that I'm really excited about. We have Bob Perkins on. Bob is a a friend of mine and uh, has been a a mentor and an advisor to me across multiple organizations. I'm really excited about about bringing him onto the show. Bob has spent his entire career trying to sell stuff to people. Sometimes it's been political ideas. Sometimes it's been fashion. Sometimes it's been pizza. But the focus has been on selling to consumers and creating structures to do that efficiently, taking a holistic look at the, at the business or organizations that he's working with. He's been a senior marketing executive at uh, household names like Pizza Hut, Calvin Klein, Playboy, and he's been both a founder and advisor to many, many startups. So again, very excited to, to have Bob on today for part one of this interview. And without further ado, let's get started. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thanks. Glad to be here, Ray. Glad to have you. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to some of the stories that I already know that you're going you're gonna to dish out. I want to start with one that you've, you've shared with me some number of years ago that's always stuck with me. And it's, it's the story of a, it's a great leadership story. And I don't remember the role that you were in, but it was a, a CEO that kind of stepped into a new, new company, large company, and didn't really spend any, any time in the office, like jumped straight out into the field. And when you've told this story, it's, it's always made me kind of rethink the role of a CEO or leadership in general. Do you mind, like for the listeners, do you mind sharing that story? I'd love to. I think there's a lesson. The lesson is it's very difficult to run a company you don't intimately understand. And sometimes when you're an entrepreneur and you're the founder, you think you really understand it. But lots of times when you get promoted or moved to a new company, you don't. I was the chief marketing officer at Pizza Hut, and the CEO was Steve Reinemann, uh, who's probably the best CEO I've ever worked for in my life. Steve's fabulous. Steve got promoted. Pizza Hut was owned by PepsiCo at the time. PepsiCo owned Frito-Lay. Steve got promoted to run Frito-Lay. And he asked me to join him, and I didn't want to go to Dallas. Long story. Steve gets to Frito-Lay. He's now the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company and for the first six months does nothing but get up every Monday morning, fly someplace, spend a week going on route trucks with people because the core advantage Frito-Lay had was a dedicated group of route guys who went, men and women, obviously, who went to every grocery store, put the product on the shelf, fluffed it up on the shelf and looked at it on the shelf. So Steve did that for six months and didn't come to board meetings, didn't just says, you guys run the company as if you didn't have a CEO, I'll be there. When he was done with that, he had three things. First of all, every route salesperson on the planet loved Steve Reinem. 
maybe Steve hadn't been with them, but they all knew somebody. Steve had spent 24 weeks on the road. Everybody knew somebody that had ridden with Steve Reinemann and Steve got in the cab and talked about their kids and talked about their dog and talked about how the history of Fiordalet was if you did really well on a route, then they gave you a failing route and why nobody liked that. I mean, so all the people loved him. And these are the people that make the business successful. These are the people that go into the grocery stores primarily every day and make sure that, that you got as many facings of Frito-Lay products as you can get. Secondly, Steve had a real understanding of the customer. He was standing around in all these grocery stores while people were, while the route salesperson was fluffing up doing what they did, which took an hour or two. And what was Steve doing? He was talking to customers. Hey, ma'am, why did you just buy Pringles? Why didn't you buy uh, my product? Why did you buy this product? What do you think about this grocery store? What do you think about prices? So Steve all of a sudden had a great sense of what the customer was thinking. And thirdly, when Steve got back into the office and somebody said, I have a great idea. And Steve said, it will never work. Nobody said, what the hell does he know? He's a new guy. They all said, why? And Steve's very rational. He gave him a rational answer. They had a rational discussion and it moved the business forward. So I think knowing your business and your customer intimately is something that's underappreciated in the modern world, that we all think smart people can parachute in and fix things immediately. And I think Steve's living proof. And by the way, he was then promoted to run PepsiCo. And what did he do at PepsiCo? He went out and rode with the route salesman at PepsiCola because they are different than the route salespeople at Frito-Lay. And he understood the business. I give Steve a huge amount of credit for that. And as I look back at when I became chief marketing officer at Pizza Hut, Steve and I talked about my doing that. Then, well, the old CMO had left and we have all these problems and we need you there immediately. Huge mistake. I should have spent a couple of months in the field for all those reasons. So that's the Steve Reinemann story. I love that story. There's a whole lot that stands out to me on that. One of them, the question, I don't think I've ever asked you this. How did he get away with that with the board? Like the, was there a pushback on this or did they, was it? Okay, go for six months and then come back. Well, Steve had run Pizza Hut for eight years and had made his numbers every year. So he was sort of the fair-haired boy, if we're allowed to use that phrase. Secondly, I think that he said that's the deal. He made that the deal. Let's figure this out. Now, he was luckier than I was. In my case, the CMO of Pizza Hut had left. They got... Roger Enrico, who was the CEO of Frito-Lay, to stay around for a few extra months so it wasn't as big a deal. But I think it's a classic example of make sure you ask for everything you need when you start a new job, and it's a lot more than money. Plus, I think if, if I was the board, and Steve's a lot more articulate than I am, and said that the board said, Steve, why do you want to do this? And Steve just gave the minute I just gave you, but a little better because he's better. As a board member, you'd say, God, you are really smart, Steve. I mean, the big advantage of a big company is it's not going to fall apart overnight. It's not a four-person operation where if somebody dies or leaves, the world comes to an end. They all have momentum. Mm-hmm. 
But my point is, is that I think it's easy to underestimate the importance of intimately knowing your customer and intimately knowing your clients and how the system works. It's easy to overlook that for exactly the reason you just said, oh my God, the world is coming to an end. I don't have time to learn the basics. Well, if you don't learn the basics, how can you fix the problem? Mm -hmm. Well, and there's also, it seems like there's a a degree of humility in saying, yeah, I can be a really smart person. I still need to do some foundational work. I still need to do some, like I, I have answers. I don't, I, I can't possibly know everything. And there's a, I mean, I, I can speak from experience as a, you know, when you, when you're dropped into a first CEO role, you want to have all the answers. You want to have a, an action, you know, a, a bias for action. And, you know, I can, I can answer all these questions and it takes some humility and, and certainly a lot of courage to say, we're going to pause and I'm going to go for six months. I'm going to go learn things that I don't know today and then put those in perspective and, and execute it in a much better way than I would otherwise. Well, you know, McKinsey did a study years ago and I haven't looked at it for years. So I'm, I may be not accurately recalling it, but they compared CEOs that were promoted from within and CEOs that were came in from the outside. And what they said is the average CEO from the outside didn't really do much for the first three months in terms of making changes. And the guy promoted, the person promoted from within started to make changes much better, which raises the question of what was the person doing for the first three months? And what they were trying to do for the first three months is do all the stuff Steve did, but it was very difficult because they still went to a bunch of meetings and tried to talk to their staff and tried to do all this stuff. So it's easy to confuse the importance of sitting in the chair with the importance of knowing what you're talking about. And I would argue that if it's how you use that three months as efficiently as possible, not do you have three months to do it, because the math is, if you're an outsider, you're going to take the three months. Mm-hmm. So what advice, I mean, you kind of hit on this with the luxury of a big business. And, and in that case, there's a little bit of redundancy with the CEO role. But if you're a founder, or if you're running a, a seven person business and you're trying to scale and you don't necessarily have the luxury of, of six months or a lot of redundancy, how can somebody in a, in a small business or startup learn from that lesson and incorporate some of that? Well, I think. One of the most important things to do, and it's very tough to do, but I try to do this in the business I'm running now, is I try to spend a day every other week talking to customers and talking to the tech people. Because even though I think I know the business pretty well, and I think I know the customers pretty well, it's in a very turbulent world. So it doesn't have to be an all or nothing. It can be a, I'm going to do a little bit of, but it's just like you go to somebody whose schedule is fully packed. They don't have any time to learn. They don't have any time to reflect. They don't have any time to pick up nuances that are going to be important going forward. Most people don't set aside time to say, I'm going to learn more about my customer base and I'm going to learn more about how my business works. And that you can do. It has to be regular. It has to be planned. It has to be thought through, but it doesn't have to be all consumed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember once I was talking to somebody about marketing and they wanted to spend $300 million and I wanted to spend $290 million because I wanted to do something else with the $10 million. And they said, we can't give up those last 
$10 million worth of gross rating points. And I said, I guarantee you, you will never notice them. The difference between 290 and 300 is not noticeable. And people that say, boy, I can't give up a little bit of time here. There, I'm just too busy. My argument would be you'll never notice it because, yeah, you, there's some small shit makes uh, slip through the cracks, but you're going to learn so much more over here. You get a much better ROI in your time. And most of us don't think about spending time like money. And the truth is, is that time is the only thing a senior executive has. So they should spend that in a very cautious way and think about, am I getting the maximum bang for my buck here? Mm-hmm. And Stephen Covey, I'm a big fan of the seven habits of highly effective people, has this great two-by-two two matrix, that important, not important, urgent, and not urgent. And of course, the most important quadrant is the not urgent, but important. Because if it's urgent and important, of course you'll do it. In theory, if it's urgent and not important, you're smart enough to say no, although a lot of people don't. They try to fix it anyway. And if it's not urgent and not important, you could everybody. But it's getting to the not urgent but important box that talking to customers and your tech people, in my case, is so essential. That's the box that defines success. And I think there's no better example of that than the period we're in right now. It's really easy to get totally distracted by all the chaos of the immediate thing and not step back and say, hey, six months ago, we should have all been paying a lot more attention to this. I was reading the Washington Post this morning online. They send it to me for free because I own a Kindle. And they had this great cartoon of a guy watching television. And he calls to his wife, hey, honey, come over here. And out of the TV comes the countdown to the New York New Year's Eve ball in Times Square. And he says, look, honey, it's season two of the COVID pandemic. We got some time left here. So it's you got to get into that urgent, not urgent, but important box. And this is just an example of that. I want to ask you about that because I've I'm also a big fan of of the seven habits and I actually recently just reread it and one of the things that's always stumped me so when I start using the matrix like whether it's the Eisenhower matrix or the or the or the, or the Covey thing is I start categorizing everything as important like it's so there's a there's because there's it's still subjective right like when you're and, and there's it's it's really difficult to quantify the important box ends up getting too full. And I look at it and once I realize it's too full, I'm like, okay, I'm clearly screwing this up. I'm not doing it right. When you're looking at, you know, as an executive and, you know, the, the important versus the urgent, do you have any, any tips on differentiating between the two of those? Like how to define them? Things can be important and urgent or not urgent. The distinction you're talking about is important versus not important. So, you know, that great buzz phrase of, consultants speak key drivers. What are the key drivers for success? Why is this important? What's going to happen if, and the question I always ask myself is, what's going to happen if I just ignore this? And, oh, Fred will really get upset and this will go wrong. But, you know, there are a lot of, if you really ask that question of a lot of things that seem to be important, it's it's not that big a deal. I I was in a meeting the other day and somebody said, we're going to do this. Do you agree with that, Bob? And I said, no. And they said, well, then maybe we shouldn't do it. And I said, look, 
there are two kinds of decisions. Decisions that are wrong, but they don't make, it doesn't make any difference if they're wrong. And decisions that if they're wrong, it makes a huge difference. This is one of the former. I think this is the wrong decision, but we'll never know it. Six months from now, no one will remember this decision. If we make it right, no one will remember it. If we make it wrong, no one will remember it. It's like, you know, what color should we paint the tile in the living room? You know, who cares? So you have to really be aggressive about figuring out what's really important. And that is one of the areas where a board or a fresh set of eyes or a consultant is so important. Because in my experience, and I'm including me, I'm, I'm as bad as everybody else, I'm running this little, I'm the chief operating officer of this startup company and everything seems important to me. And then my part, I have two partners, they have their own important list. And between the three of us, we have a gigantic important list. So while we put some processes in place to allocate resources, and at least we've done it okay, we have eight engineers, they work 40 hours a week, they work four weeks a month. That's 1,200 engineering hours a month. How are we going to spend those 1,200 hours? That is a, dis a discussion we have every other week. So when somebody comes in and says, we've got to fix this and it's really important and it's going to take 600 hours, we can say, well, what, what are we going to push off the engineer's plate to get 600 hours? Because we don't have the money to go out and hire more engineers. So... But occasionally, I wish we had an outside voice. We don't really have a very strong board because it's us, which is a mistake, but that's the way the world works. But we need, a, we would benefit, I think everybody benefits from having a, a little more dispassionate, gee, Bob, I know that's your pet project and I know you really love it, but it ain't worth the money, it's not worth the time, or it's not that important. Mm -hmm. And that's really true of things that are not important and urgent because. I tell this story all the time. I don't know if I ever told you this story. When I was in politics, somebody was t t telling me, we have to do this, we have to do that. And I say, look, when you're the CEO, the job is not for somebody for the, to sit, the phone rings and you pick it up and they go, hi, this is the fire department. Hi, I, there's a house burning at 32nd in Maine, send out the fire trucks. Your job is not to send out the fire trucks. Your job is to look at the resources, to look at the assets, to look at the mission, and most of the time say, let it burn. That, you know, Peter Drucker famously said, the essence of strategy is denial. Let it burn. And of course, when you say let it burn, the person that owns the house has a heart attack, and this is outrageous, and the company's going to die. But that's what management's all about, selecting priorities. And when you say everything's important, that means you have no priorities. That means you don't understand the key drivers of your business. Or that means you need somebody to hold your hand, metaphorically speaking, and say it's all right to let a few houses burn. Well, there's always, what do they say? Like I'm actually, it's also, also I think it's Franklin Covey stuff. Uh, I don't know if you know, four disciplines of execution. And it's Sean Covey. And he, they in there, they have the wildly important goal because they say that the whirlwind is going to happen. Like that's your day job. And I'm, I'm doing a workshop for business on this right now. 
so it's it's fresh on my mind but you 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 have to hone in on what is the one or two wildly important goals that we're going to focus on and then what's the structure we're going to put together to make to hold people accountable to that on a weekly basis and and keep moving the ball forward because it's i think they say in the in in the book that there's all there are always more good ideas than there is time to execute like you're and as a your your job as an executive is to recognize even the biggest companies on the planet don't have enough resources to pursue every good idea so focus is really important but people don't talk about where focus comes from very much they think of focus as the way you think of a camera you look through the aperture and you twist the dial and then things look like they're they look in the real world so you focused in focus comes from understanding what the key drivers of success are focus is not saying oh i understand this perf- i can see this Clearly, it's what you just said earlier, right? Hey, that's a good idea, but it, it's not going to help us get to this key goal. So focus is really the ability to discriminate between things that drive you and things that don't drive, don't drive the business forward. And if you don't understand the business and you don't have a pretty clear sense of what's going to drive success, it's very tough to focus because... And this is a trap that a lot of small businesses fall in. When do you pivot and when do you stay the course? Mm -hmm. And if you pivot too early, then you never really exhaust an idea. And if you pivot too late, then you run yourself down a rabbit hole and you run out of money. So that is a balancing act that most people don't think about consciously. In other words, they say, okay, we've set this goal, we're working on it, it's not working, but this thing looks more attractive, let's go over here. That discussion doesn't get enough airtime in my experience. Okay, we're going to do this, now we're going to do that, then we're going to do this, and pretty soon you're not accumulating the learning to help you move the business forward. Because, you know, a startup is really a, a learning machine, you know, the who wrote the book, The Lean Startup? Yeah, Eric. Uh, Eric, Eric Reese, maybe? Reese, yeah, I think so. Something like that. Well, you know, he says a startup is a learning machine. So what, what do we need to learn? What's the most important thing to learn? And what's the cheapest way to learn? Very interesting observation. Very important observation. If you bounce around too much, you don't ever learn. You learn... 10 different things, but you don't learn 10 things stacked up on each other. Mm-hmm. Because the goal is that every learning gives you another learning, which gives you, it's, it's like building a chain. You want the links all to fit together. You don't want to have 10 links scattered across the floor. That's not a chain. That's a tough thing to watch. <laughs> if you're early stage and you want to develop the discipline to learn effectively, pivot, appropriately like the things that we're talking about focus how do you what what would you recommend to a to a ceo or founder early on to set the foundation to make sure that that happens i think you have to have a process in place at brightpool we have a vision committee that meets every other week to talk about how we allocate exactly this what's the most important thing what are we learning what are we Every other other week, we have an engineering meeting talking about the engineers and what they need to know. 
Then every other week, we have a meeting with the sales team. Here's what's coming down the product pipeline. We thought you said you could sell this where we write. So we sort of have three ways to allocate resources. And the meetings happen. Everybody come. You have to come to them. I mean, the beauty of Zoom is it's easier to have a meeting. Mm-hmm. A lot of entrepreneurs will say, well, we're too busy or we're too small. Well, if the meeting only takes 10 minutes, it only takes 10 minutes. But once you get in the habit of thinking like that, then it's easy to start to make the right decision. Because it's like baseball. You don't have to bat a thousand. You have to you bat 500. You're going to do really, really well. Right. And who, so in a, say a, a small business or a, or even a mid-sized company, the when you say that, I imagine that falls to the CEO, but the, I guess a two-part question, it, does it fall to the CEO? And if you aren't the CEO and you're in an organization that doesn't do this well, are you basically screwed or are there things that you can, you can do to implement these types of systems? And I think that in my experience, if you're not, the, if you're the, it's your job if you're the CEO for sure. But if you're not the CEO and you're high enough up in the organization to talk to the CEO, then all you have to do is show the, the chaos that's going on. I think most CEOs, everybody has a knowledge set. Nobody's knowledge set is perfect. A lot of CEOs don't have that gene or that's not in their knowledge set. But if once explained to them, they'll adopt it immediately. Now. A funny story, I was hired once upon a time to help reorganize U.S. senators' offices. So I did six of them. And then they, they called me six months later, come back. I told them all essentially the same thing, more or less. So they said, come back six months later and see how it works, see how they're doing. Three of them were running four times more efficiently than I ever thought possible. They were, well, oh, oh, Bob, you said we should do this, but that didn't work. We do this. I mean, they were flawless. Three of them were backed. They were screwed up as when I had gotten there six months earlier. So you get a bad CEO, you're not going to have a good outcome. (laughs) Yeah, right. And I would talk to a U.S. senator. I thought we agreed that you would only... When you walk from your office to the Senate floor to vote, you would only take one staffer with you and have an agenda. Yeah, we tried that, but it was no fun and people felt left out and I I missed the excitement. Well, you know, you don't want to be organized. You don't want to be organized. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Bob, for joining. I really appreciate your time. Really glad to have you for round one of this. We are most certainly going to do this and uh, and pick up with a, with a longer interview here shortly. So looking forward to having you back and thanks again. Thanks again for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to rate and review the podcast. It does help us out a lot. For more information about me or our business, Ray J. Green and Company, check out www.rayjgreen.com. And if you're in a role of leading sales improvement at the CEO level, as a business owner, or in a sales leadership position, you can apply to join our Sales Leadership Foundations community, plus get access to content and events that I don't share anywhere else. Again, rayjgreen.com. Thanks again for listening. Adios.